What a beautiful morning already. We've been led in worship in so many wonderful ways. Thank you to all of you. Well, good morning. If you are new to First Baptist, I am not the usual preacher. At least I'm not the one who usually stands up here and delivers the sermon. I usually sit over there and deliver the mini sermon to the many people. And those of you who need things simplified, you just eavesdrop on us. But this morning, I will try to keep it simple, but I may take more than four minutes. I was a very willful child. When I was less than two years old, I would sometimes get angry. You've probably witnessed small children and their bouts of anger. Kids control very little in their worlds, and the struggle for control is real, even at an early age. As my parents told me many times when I was growing up, my favorite words were, I can do it myself. Of course, that wasn't true, but I liked to maintain the illusion. When I became very angry, I would hold my breath. I was so young, I don't remember actually doing it, and I'm not sure why, but I imagine that it was my way to have control over something in my life. And also, I knew that it freaked my mom out. And if you're a parent, you can appreciate that kids learn really early on which buttons to push to try to maintain control. So I would hold my breath. You and I breathe in and out about 20,000 times a day, and we rarely give it any thought. In fact, people say it's as natural as breathing. Breathing is something we take for granted until it is compromised or threatened. In 2020, we might say that the theme of the year is breathing, or rather our inability to breathe. In 2020, we've been awakened to the reality that life can deprive us of breath. I know that sounds ironic, but life can deprive us of breath. And our experience this year can offer us a picture of a reality that extends beyond 2020. Early in the year, we became aware of an invisible enemy. I read about a man named Dwayne. He was a software analyst in Massachusetts. And in March, he was experiencing a bad cough and chest discomfort and a headache. And while he waited for the results of his COVID-19 test, Dwayne started having serious breathing problems. His wife remembers him sitting in a recliner all night. And by morning, she said it was extremely scary. He was getting blue tinged in his face and he said, we've got to do something, we have to go in. Duane went to the hospital by ambulance and he didn't see his wife for another five weeks after that. Doctors started by giving him high flow oxygen in a face mask and he begged them not to put him on a ventilator. He said, dying from suffocation has always been my biggest fear. The thought of them connecting me to a machine to breathe and someone being able to turn off the power, it terrified me. Nine months into this pandemic, we continue to live in fear of a day when we or our loved ones will find that we are unable to breathe because an invisible enemy can deprive us of breath. In addition to an invisible enemy, this is a year when we've also struggled with racial inequity. In 2014, a black man named Eric Garner died in a police chokehold after saying, I can't breathe, 11 times. And in May, following the death of George Floyd, 
That same phrase became the rally cry for people who despaired over black men and women dying under the literal or figurative knee of someone with more power. They once again took up that rally cry, I can't breathe, because racial inequity can deprive us of breath. An invisible enemy and racial inequity can deprive us of breath, but so can toxic air. I know January seems like a really long time ago, but you may remember the images on the news of the Australian uh, forests being ravaged by wildfire. Who can forget those images of the koalas being rescued by the truckload and brought to safety? And then later in the year, the wildfires began in California. The governor had a news conference that said that over 367 wildfires were burning all at one time. As of mid-November, those fires had burned over 4.3 million acres, making this the worst wildfire season in California's modern recorded history. And then they went to Colorado, too. I heard an interview with a nurse from Seattle, Washington, and you may remember that Seattle was one of the first places hit by COVID. She said that just when they felt like they had been able to recognize and quickly treat the folks who were coming in with COVID, a whole new swarm of people started coming in and presenting with the same symptoms. They had shortness of breath, they were coughing, but this time it was because of the wildfires. It was because of smoke inhalation. Because just like an invisible enemy and racial inequity, toxic air can deprive us of breath. Looking back at this incredible year, I believe it's fair to say that we all have a new appreciation for the fact that, ironic though it seems, life can deprive us of breath. I said earlier that we typically draw about 20,000 breaths a day without even thinking about it. But when we are confronted with the possibility of not being able to draw another breath, we feel out of control. For many of us, that is the worst kind of feeling. Now, maybe there are some of you who love to wake up in the morning without a plan. Just to experience life as it comes. You go with the flow. You don't worry about tomorrow. You simply bask in the glory of today. Bless you all. <laughs> Far more of us want a to-do list. We want do's and don'ts. We want a calendar with a plan for the day, for the week, for the year. But this year we've discovered that any, <coughs> excuse me, any sense of control is an illusion. We can't control our health. We can't control our economy. Perhaps we can't control our employment. We can't control the outcome of an election. We can't control our children or our parents. But let's be honest, we've never actually controlled those things. This might just be the year when we've admitted it. Go ahead and take out your copy of scripture and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1. You can mark that place. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. That's Romans 8, starting in verse 1. But before we get there, I want to take us back a little bit, actually all the way to the beginning. As early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we discover the source of our breath. <clears throat> then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Picture that moment with me. 
I can imagine God stretching out his arms into the void and creating the light and the sun and the oceans, all of those big, huge, wondrous things. And then the creator of the universe makes a human. And he tenderly holds him and leans over and breathes his breath of life into that human. The breath is more than the literal flow of air. It's actually the animating force within us. I'm a bit of a word nerd, and I recently discovered that the word in the Old Testament Hebrew, as well as the Greek of the New Testament, the word for breath is the same as the word for spirit. In Hebrew, that word is ruach, and it can mean breath, like what we breathe in and out. It can also mean our spirit, like the life force within us, and it can refer to the spirit of God. The same is true of the Greek word pneuma, ruach and pneuma, breath, life force, and spirit. Now we all know what happened not long after that first life-giving breath. Humans exercised our free will, sin entered the world, and we exchanged the order and peace of life in God's presence for the chaos of life outside of it. From that point on, our breath was threatened and would ultimately end with the death of our bodies and the end of our being. While an invisible enemy and racial inequity and toxic air can deprive us of breath and kill our bodies, the ultimate reality is that sin will deprive us of breath. Sin will deprive us of breath, and it won't just kill our bodies, it will kill our souls, the very essence of who we are. That's a lot of bad news. But here we are in a season of Advent, a season of hope and peace and love and joy. And in this season, there is good news of great joy as we prepare for what is coming. On this side of one of the two greatest events in all of human history, we know that God did something, well, let's just say it was pretty breathtaking. Out of his abundant love for us, God took the immensity of his spirit and his life-giving breath, and he poured it into a teeny, tiny human form. Now to the text that you have found, starting in Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, that's that word pneuma, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's that word again, pneuma. Maybe you've read those words dozens of times. Maybe you've even memorized some of them, or perhaps it's your first time hearing them this morning. But regardless of that, I want you to hear this. Sin can deprive us of breath, but Jesus gives us lasting breath. God's breath, his spirit, was poured into a tiny, fragile human form, just like the bodies inhabited by you and me. Before I got up here, you heard the Christmas song, Breath of Heaven. 
That song always reminds me of Christmas Eve's growing up. We're in a peaceful setting and our hearts are warm as we think about the magnitude of the incarnation. And we think about that quiet scene in a peaceful cave and everything is idyllic and sweet and serene. Have you ever been in a delivery room? I have three times and it was not serene. Mom is screaming and sweat is streaming down her face and dad is wondering what he can possibly do to, to help and he's feeling so bad for the person that he loves most in the world. There's blood and tears and then the baby finally comes and everyone holds their breath waiting for that sound. That sound that will make them know that everything has all been worth it. And then the baby finally gasps its first breath and gives a lusty cry. And then everyone's crying and laughing all at the same time. And it is not a peaceful scene. I think the first Christmas looked a lot more chaotic than we usually imagine it. The pangs of childbirth, the braying of animals, the worry of a father, the angels singing and the shepherds shouting. Jesus broke into our world as the Prince of Peace, but not the Prince of Serenity. His peace is a deep-seated soul assurance in the middle of the chaos. God's breath embodied, entered the chaos. The world that Jesus broke into isn't really that different than 2020. In that body that housed the breath of God, Jesus would encounter his own enemies, visible and invisible, and he would come face to face with sin. Jesus was fully human, all the glory of God embodied within the limitations of a human form. His breath was every bit as vulnerable as yours and mine. But while we hold on to our breath and we try to control the outcome of every situation, Jesus responded differently. We assert our will and we claim our rights and we say, I can do it myself. Jesus, who actually could control anything, who could have changed the outcome, he voluntarily surrendered his breath. Jesus suffered death by asphyxiation. Luke 24, 46 says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus let go of his hold on the life-giving breath within him, not because he had to, but because he loves each one of us. The greatest gift ever offered to mankind is the breath of God embodied and surrendered for you and me. Because of that surrendered breath, sin can deprive us of breath, but Jesus gives us a new and lasting breath to keep on living. Here's how that works. The second of the two greatest events in all of human history happened at Easter. And because Jesus had voluntarily surrendered his breath, he got it back. And then he spent some time living on earth and he shared with his disciples before he left for heaven. He said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, 
he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So God breathed life-giving breath into the first human, and the human came under the curse of sin and death. And to save him, God poured his breath into Jesus. Then Jesus gave up his breath to free us from sin and everlasting death. But then God went one step further so that we could experience the fullness of life on earth as well as eternal life. He sent his Holy Spirit, his pneuma, to each one of us. In the Old Testament, the Israelites used to carry the tabernacle around with them until they built the temple. And God's presence, or his spirit, dwelt in the tabernacle, and the priests would go and meet with him there. It was a temporary and complicated arrangement. But now, under the new covenant, we have no more need of a physical dwelling place for God's spirit, because each one of us who professes Jesus as Lord and Savior becomes a temple. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, indwells each one of us. So sin has deprived us of breath, but Jesus has given us a new and lasting breath. This breath is the very Spirit of God, alive in each of his followers. Turn back, if you will, to Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, trying to breathe on their own, they cannot please God. Let me paint another picture to help you understand what this looks like. I'm going to tell you about birds, not bees. I'm going to leave that to Jamie, our student pastor. <laughs> birds are, of course, governed by the law of gravity, just like the rest of us. There's a pull from the center of the earth that keeps them on the ground. But in spite of that gravity, birds have the ability to break free and to soar. Have you ever looked at a bird in flight and wished for that kind of freedom? God designed some birds with a very unique feature. Unlike our bones, bird bones are hollow, which makes it easier for them to fly. They are pneumatized. It's from that same Greek word, pneuma. And they contain air sacs that allow them to inhale and exhale simultaneously. So in order to overcome the law of gravity, a bird must be filled with a breath that buoys them and overcomes the downward pull. The same principle is at work in us. The law of sin pulls us down. Only God's spirit at work within us can free us from what drags us down and allow the freedom to soar in the fullness of the life that he intends for us. Back to Romans beginning in verse 9 this time. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to God. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives 
in you. So what do we do with this? We have a choice. We can live our lives like it's 2020, trying to exert our will over the invisible enemies, the racial inequity, the toxic air over sin itself. And we should fight against these evils, but in a different way than simply trying to exert our will over them. Do you remember the story about little tiny willful me holding my breath to demonstrate my control? My mom was distraught every time I did that. And so she asked her own father what she should do. My grandfather, who was an experienced parent, simply laughed and he said, let her. Eventually, she'll just pass out and it'll all be fine. <laughs> I can imagine God watching us and shaking his head tenderly and thinking, relax, breathe, my child. Or hold your breath, pass out, and we'll try it again. We can dig in our heels and try to control our breath, or we can surrender and breathe in the fullness of life in the spirit, the breath of God. Allow the things of this world that scare you and wound you and paralyze you to fall away. Then allow the life-giving spirit of the living, breathing God to fill you instead. That is freedom. That is peace. Regardless of the chaos around us, that is the peace that transcends human understanding. So live with God's breath instead of relying on your own. Here's a paraphrase from the message, uh, just a little bit of what we've read in Romans 8 that I think says it very well. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. When God lives and breathes in you as he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from the dead life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. I've listened to sermons for a lot of years, and if there's one thing that I have learned, it's that you can't go wrong with a good C.S. Lewis quote. So I'd like to leave you with this image from one of my favorite books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, it's set in Narnia, and the White Witch has control. And she has made it always winter, but never spring. And anyone who crosses her, she simply turns into a stone statue. At the end of the story, spoiler alert, sorry, Aslan the lion has just returned and he's overcome death and he's bringing spring and life back to Narnia. Lucy and Susan are with Aslan and they come to the courtyard of the White Witch's castle where all the stone statues are. As the girls exclaim over the sight, Aslan bounds up to a statue of a stone lion and he breathes on him. Oh, Susan, look, look at that lion. I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion looked just the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run along his white marble back. Then it spread, then the color seemed to lick all over him as the flame licks over a bit of paper. 
Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane, and all the heavy stony folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn, and now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking round him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. Perhaps we've been tempted to live this year like stone statues, paralyzed by our fears and our inability to control our breath. But we have the opportunity to return to life, to be freed from our sin and our fear and our human limitations. So feel the breath of God on your face. Feel his spirit alive within you and know what it is to soar.